1: Your time is 1700 hours Central African time. You listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31 band. If you're in Southern Africa, we are also on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. I am with Onel Ndindi, Wisani Matebula and Mosibudi Makura this hour. Your top stories. The spotlight shines on media freedom on the continent. The World Economic Forum hopes to kickstart African continent. In economics, Lafarge Holcim gets off to a promising start in 2017 with sales and profits beating forecasts. And in sport top athletes get ready for the 2017 Doha Diamond League Series. Here's on Elin
2: Thank you, Spoo. Now looking at your news update. United Nations Office for the Coordination for Humanitarian Affairs has disclosed the plight of thousands of South Sudanese fleeing from the old reach Nile region north of the capital Juba and crossing into neighboring Sudan to seek refuge due to the current ethnic fighting. James Shimanyula reports.
3: The biggest concern from our perspective is protection. So there are thousands of civilians here and our biggest fear is, of course, that they could be attacked. They're deeply fearful that they could be next and that they could be attacked. Under international law, the first and primary responsibility for the protection of civilians in any country is the government that all parties to the conflict, not just the government, the government is the primary duty bearer so that it must protect the civilians, but also that the other party to the conflict and the non-state armed actors in the area, that they ensure that any areas where we have large numbers of civilians remain demilitarized so that they cannot become the target of attack in the event of conflict in the area.
2: We do apologize for that wrong reporter. Zimbabwean journalists have requested for an audience with 93-year-old President Robert Mugabe amid concerns of increasing intimidation by the police and politicians ahead of the 2018 polls. This comes following statements by Amnesty International complaining of persistent attacks against journalists and media owners across southern Africa. During the World Press Freedom held... Day held in the capital on Wednesday. Journalists complained of factional fights in the ruling ZANU-PF have intensified putting the lives of media practitioners at risk. Simon Muchama reports.
4: The Media
5: Institute of Southern Africa, MISA, recorded assaults of 32 journalists as they went about their work between January and September 2016. Amnesty International say journalists are constantly harassed, intimidated, and jailed simply for doing their work, causing them to self-censor and undermining the whole profession. During the event marking the Press Freedom Day in the capital, speaker after speaker urged Mugabe to
4: restore sanity in the country ahead of the 2018 polls.
2: Nigeria's president is again missing his weekly cabinet meetings as concerns mount about his health. President Muhammadu Buhari took six weeks of medical leave in London earlier this year, leading to some calls for his replacement. The uncertainty over his health has raised fear of instability in Africa's most populous nation. A tweet from Buhari's office said the latest cabinet meeting was being preceded over by Vice President Yemi Osibanjo. The United Kingdom says it's bringing a significant support for the Democratic Republic of Congo to improve its strategies of fighting against sexual and gender-based violence. Speaking at a conference on end sexual violence in conflict zones, Ambassador of UK in the DRC Graham Zabadir, emphasized three needs for the situation to be under full control.
5: Firstly, the justice system has to continue to get better.
1: So there's been some quite significant improvements over the last few years on justice, both in civilian and military justice. But it's still quite patchy. So there are places where there have been really quite good investigations being carried out, People are being convicted and imprisoned uh, for sexual violence and the places where that's not happening. Second, there needs to be much less stigma of uh, victims. There are places where people are treated as if they were the one who's done something wrong when they've been raped. And then thirdly, there's a need to improve significantly the medical treatment and the psychological treatment of people who have
6: been raped.
2: And lastly, the main Syrian opposition delegation has walked out of the latest round of Russian-backed ceasefire talks in Astana, Kazakhstan. For the first time, a U.S. State Department official is attending the talks as an observer. The BBC's Sebastian Asher reports.
1: The delegation representing rebel fighters on the ground suspended their participation in the Astana talks shortly after they resumed for a fourth round. It says the move is in protest at continuing government airstrikes on civilians. The talks, which are being held in parallel with the UN-Geneva process, were due to focus on the idea of establishing areas where fighting could be controlled and access given to humanitarian aid. Russia is describing these as de-escalation zones. In Idlib, eastern Ghouta on the outskirts of Damascus, and southern Syria.
2: Channel Africa News, I'm Onylin Sinti.
1: Thank you very much, Onele. Your time is 17.06 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. The Chair of the African Union Commission on Human and People's Rights and Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, Bantin Tlakula, says, Although Africa has made progress in advancing media freedom, journalists on the continent continue to be harassed by authorities for doing their jobs. Tlacoula's comments come as the World marks Press Freedom Day, which is commemorated under the theme... Critical Minds for Critical Times, media's role in advancing peaceful, just and inclusive society. Jagula says overboard national security laws are often used by authorities to suppress the free press.
7: This day is important uh, for us on the African continent because as we commemorate it, we have to look at uh, the achievements or uh, the advancements that we have made regarding press freedom on our continent. We also have to reflect on uh, the challenges. But most importantly, I think we have to use the day to remember journalists and media practitioners on the African continent and globally who have uh, lost their lives uh, in the line of duty, those who continue to face reprisals, attacks, intimidation, harassment, including closure of their media houses. So this day, give us the opportunity to reflect on those issues.
3: Now advocate, is enough being done uh, by bodies such as the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, which you chair to address this problem of journalists across the continent who continue to be arrested and harassed for doing their job?
7: Yes, we are doing our biddle Probably be aware that uh, for the past uh, 12 years I have been the Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression and Access to Information in Africa. We have, over the 12 years, seen some improvement on press um, freedom, but we are also encountering new challenges. I think the challenges that we have, I think, include the fact that most of the countries in the world and on the continent in particular still have laws in their statute books that restrict freedom of expression and media freedom. I'm talking about laws such as Criminal defamation. I'm talking about laws that have insult laws, publication of false news, and we have seen these laws being used to prosecute journalists who publish stories that are critical to the government. Uh, but the new emerging challenges include shutting down of uh, the internet, particularly during uh, demonstrations, uh, during elections, and using overly broad national security laws to unreasonably restrict media freedom. These are some of the challenges, but on the positive aspect, I think the Commission has tried over the years to monitor the situation of freedom of expression on the continent and the Commission has also adopted a resolution which mirrors that of UNESCO on uh, promoting uh, safety of journalists and dealing with the issue of impunity
3: Now, last year here in South Africa the specialized commercial crime court had the first case of illegal surveillance against journalists uh, in post-democratic South Africa uh, in which members of the police crime intelligence division were accused of taking the phones of two Sunday Times journalists while they were reporting on scandals in the security structures. Would you say the surveillance of journalists on the continent is posing a threat to media freedom?
7: Yes, I think so. That is a, a, a common uh, occurrence uh, on, on our continent. Illegal surveillance, I think, is what is uh, going on and, uh, you know, governments tend to use the excuse of cybercrime to surveillance, illegal surveillance, but as I've also indicated, on the continent, uh, they also use the national security laws, anti-terrorism laws to prosecute journalists You would be aware of the case of a journalist called uh, Mr. Abba in Cameroon who has just been sentenced to 10 years by the military court in, in, in that country using the terrorism
4: laws of, of Cameroon,
3: and, and how is your commission going to address uh, this case of Ahmed Aba? Would you be able to help in terms of making sure that um, he gets out of jail?
7: Yes, uh, we, we can do our best. You know, we are a treaty body. We monitor violations of human rights. We have just, and as, as a special rapporteur, dispatched a letter to President Bia regarding that case. Um, we'll see whether we'll get a response or not. In some of the cases that we have dealt with, uh, the government have responded. The case in Lesotho of uh, a journalist uh, who was uh, shot and uh, another one who um, was also threatened is one of the issues uh, that we raised, the issues in Swaziland, the issues in Eritrea. David Ishaq uh, Davis, uh, who today is being honored by UNESCO, is an issue that has been pretty occupied with for a very long time. So I would say that as a treating body, we have tried our best. raise uh, these issues. Also on the SABC issue, uh, the commissioner who is responsible for South Africa, who is not me, but is a resident uh, of um, Uganda, did write to President Zuma to express concern about the allegations of uh, suppression of freedom of expression at the public broadcaster.
1: That is Panzit Lagula, Chair of the African Union Commission on Human and People's Rights and Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, talking to Kumbero Mujerere. Every year on the 3rd of May, the fundamental principles of press freedom are celebrated. The day is also meant to evaluate press freedom around the world, to defend the media from attacks on their independence and to pay tribute to journalists who have lost their lives in the exercise of their profession. International celebrations take place each year to commemorate this day. The United Nations Education, Scientific and Cultural Organizations leads the world celebration by identifying the global thematic and organizing the main events in different parts of the world every year. Adjunct Professor of Journalism and Director of the VETS Radio Academy at the University of Witwatersrand, Franz Kruger tells us more about the South African challenges.
8: Well I think freedom is something that you always have to continue fighting for and so it's never a finished business. We can never say that we're free and that's all that there is to be said about it. I think compared to many other countries we're not that badly off. We have a a very strong constitution. We have a very lively media. There are political pressures from time to time. We have issues in our public broadcasting sector that we have to contend with. There is talk once again from the ruling party of a media appeals tribunal, which we think would be a very, very bad thing. So it's a constant struggle. It's not something that one finishes. But I do think that compared to many other countries, you know, we're not that badly off.
0: Now, we've seen um, over the last year media organizations really, you know, uh, raising their voices against uh, media censorship. This, of course, uh, follows some incidents, uh, one of those being an um, agent is from the SABC who spoke out, you know, against uh, certain issues and uh, who were subjected to being fired, getting death threats. Would you say that this shows uh, signs of uh, a looming threat to media freedom in this part of the continent?
8: Well, of course, those kinds of incidents are deeply deplorable. You know, and as I said earlier, I mean, the SABC is now struggling to come out of what I think has been quite a dark period. And uh, the firing of journalists in that way uh, was a very, uh, you know, it was a very deplorable incident. So, you know, I think that, as I said, the, you know, we have to keep an eye open for those kinds of things and highlight them. And I suppose that's the point of a day like today is that we use it to highlight the importance of media freedom for democracy. And I think it is in that highlighting, in keeping aware and keeping alert to threats of various kinds that we actually maintain the media freedom that we need.
0: Now, apart from the media freedom, there have been, you know, some criticisms around um, irresponsible reporting from journalists themselves. Now, do you think that we have enough sort of bodies to be looking into that to ensure that indeed uh, the credibility of um, journalism in this part of the continent is indeed upheld?
8: You know, I think that the media, much like everybody else, benefits from scrutiny. So where journalists themselves make mistakes or are deliberately untruthful, you know, those things need to be highlighted, and I think that's good for the media, and it's good for media freedom. So, you know, I think that there can never be too much of that kind of scrutiny. I think there is a difference between scrutiny and criticism, on the one hand, and actual attempts to control or censor the media, those are two very different things. But certainly where journalists get it wrong, that should be highlighted. I mean, one of the topics that, you know, has been much in discussion of late has been this phenomenon of fake news where people actually make up things for sometimes for political purposes, sometimes to make money. And that, I think, is a very damaging trend that I think as journalists we have to be very aware of and to consider, you know, ways of combating. Because I think it undermines the trust um, that audiences have in the regular media product, even when the fake news doesn't actually come from, you know, more reputable sources, but come from elsewhere. And
1: that's Professor Franz Kruger, who is the adjunct professor of journalism and director of the WITS Radio Academy at the University of witt in Johannesburg. And he was in conversation there with Zikona Amiso. Your time is 1716 Central African Time. You are listening to Africa Digest with myself, Spomele Lezondi. I am with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. Now, as part of the World Economic Forum... There will be an opening tonight of a side event called Made in Africa. The event aims to be a platform during the forum for entrepreneurs in the creative industry to highlight the importance of investing in startups in the creative arts and the world of fashion. To find out more, we have on the line Craig Jacobs, who is the founder of Funduzi, a proudly South African fashion label. Hello, Craig.
5: Hi, thanks for having me on your show.
1: Um, Craig, if you can just start by telling us about Made in Africa, how did the concept come about?
5: Look, um, the first time um, that the Made in Africa concept did um, originate was at Kigali at the last World Economic Forum in Africa. And there's a realization about the impact that the creative industries are having on global economies. So it's, it's, it's a way of unpacking how Africa can be involved and how Africa can can grow economically um, in in, in, um, this crucial market which we're actually really not tapping into that um, consistently as um, globally, when you think about Europe, when you think about America, in terms of creative industries and specifically in fashion as well, um, we know a lot more about international brands than we do um, local African ones and um, I suppose most Africans don't necessarily support that much um, African luxury. So it's kind of unpacking mm-hmm. that, trying to get to the, the crux of the matter, trying to see how Africa can be a for, form part of or be a palpable part of what is really a $2.5 trillion business globally.
1: Mm. You, you spoke about fashion, but what you'll be doing at the World Economic Forum is not just about fashion, is it?
5: Yeah, we look at, um, it's, it's basically, look, I am looking at things from a fashion perspective, but it is um, the, the the side event. So look, this is a side event from the World Economic Conference, So, and it's specifically looking at Made in Africa is looking at the creative industry in general. So um, it taps into textile, it taps into jewelry, taps into other forms of creative art, um, such as um, art art, Art itself, fine art, um, is also being explored.
1: Mm. Um, We've heard time and time again um, that uh, generally parents would not allow their children to be artists. They would want them to be lawyers, to be doctors, to be accountants, (laughs) etc., etc. Are you saying there's money in this industry?
5: Well, I mean, if you just need to look at it globally and think about it, the richest man in Europe is um, um, the owner of um, Inditex, which owns Zara. Um, so I mean, I just think I mean if you think about things like that, and one of the, of the richest men in France is the person who owns LVMH. Um, so the fashion industry, like creative industries, I mean, are um, increasingly becoming quite influential and being viable as well from a commercial point of view.
1: Let's talk about Africa now, Uh, bringing that to Africa, because you just gave us um, um, European examples. What do you think is the impediment in Africa in terms of the creative industries um, not bringing in as much money as you believe they can bring in?
5: Yeah, you know, I think um, I I would say one of the biggest issues would be access to market um, when it comes to, um, designer brands, um, there's um, less opportunities in, in Africa to be able to retail your stuff and issue to your own standalone store. Um, if you, you look at the rest of the world, um, there's a culture of boutiques purchasing locally manufactured goods and selling it. We don't really have that much of a culture of doing that. I think that, that's a key thing, so it's about the value chain or the, the the pipeline, if you like. And I think the other thing as well is in education, um, education of the African consumer, the South African consumer, but Africa in general. Um, I find with my brand, for instance, um, when I go to um, a fashion capital like Milan or Paris, mm. I find that the consumers, they're more receptive to, to African um, design than... certain extent it is on the continent. We kinda think, Oh, we'll wear something that's because it's traditional or you know what I mean? But we have an association that European is better. Whereas when you go to Europe they say, wow, I haven't seen this
8: before. I love it. I want it. What about the
1: worry, um, especially from people who want to get into the profession of fashion design, that um, it, it, it's, it can get stolen quite easily. Someone goes to a store, um, they, they take photographs of how it's done, and they go to a seamstress up the road, and, uh, and, and that seamstress can put it together for a fraction of the price. And <laughs> What about that worry from someone who's thinking of getting into the fashion industry, and say, and, and they think that, well, I'm not really going to make money because people uh, steal patterns and things.
5: I have to say, I mean, if you, if you, I mean, look, I've had in the past things that have been copied, um, not just by locally people, like the example you use, but seeing big retailers do that. Um, I, I think that um, it's about the power of the brand and building that brand. Um, if you, if you think about, I mean, I, I mentioned Zara for an example, and Zara is notorious for globally taking what happens in international design from the catwalks. And copying it and selling it into stores in a mass market way, um, um, Louis Vuitton has a big issue with counterfeit goods globally, um, but if the consumer is aware that like kind of i 'm purchasing this luxury good it's it 's based on um, this history it 's got this compelling story. I buy into that story, then you 'll purchase that, that 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 piece of apparel or that handbag so I think it, it's it 's all about. Um, Creating a compelling story for a consumer um, that they know that if they purchase something, um, if I say, if it but doesn't have my label, it's not a Ponduzzi. So it doesn't mm. matter if it looks the same but never touched my hand. And when you purchase something from me, you bind into a piece of me. Mm.
6: Um,
1: and uh, what? how influential are African designers? Are they influential enough to have potential of making money from the
5: clothing that they, they design? Well I think what we've seen is we are seeing a complete shift. Um if you if you look at um globally um, the rest of the world is paying a lot more attention from a creative point of
6: view
5: to Africa. Um, but,
1: Craig, um, are they paying more attention mm-hmm. to African designs, patterns, textiles? We, for example, have seen Louis Vuitton doing the Basutu clothing um, mm-hmm. in, in a Western manner, oh, the, the, the Maasai as well. Wow. The as well. But it, the designers themselves, how influential are the designers themselves and not just patterns taken from Africa?
5: Sure. Well, I was going to say. I mean, if you look at like a Michelle Obama Jiro Jirowuro, who's a Nigerian designer, um, Beyonce um, has also worn African designers. So it's, it's increasingly doing that. I'm finding myself with myself that I'm I'm getting a lot of um, contacts um, from stylists um, internationally who are looking into to to um, um, sourcing garments, and they have in the past. Um, for for people overseas and um, you're also getting increasingly – I get um, uh, emails um, consistently from consumers around the world who come across my my apparel and want to have access to it. So it is changing. I really do believe it is changing. I think that Africans More importantly,
1: we need to support Africa. Mm. And and now at this event um, on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum, um, it's called Made in Africa. So is it creatives from all across the African continent or is it just South Africa?
5: They are, um, look, they are, they are creators from all across the continent which are being represented. B- represented. Um, I can't speak for the organizer's point of view about who um, is being represented. Look, I mean, I do know yeah. there is a predominant South African um, presence. But I I suppose maybe that might be a geographic issue or there might be some other reasons. But I'm made in Africa, like I said, it started in Kigali. Mm. um, That was in the last World Economic Forum. And I think this is something that's going to be growing. And um, it's a great opportunity for African artisans all to communicate together and to share views and ideas and find ways that we can move forward.
1: What are you showing off?
5: I beg your pardon?
1: What will you be showing off? Um, What will you be um, showing off at the World Economic Forum?
5: um, um, uh, Which is looking at the road ahead for African brands in the 21st century. Um, And then um, also as part of um, the side events, there is a pop-up. So if anyone comes to the Durban Exhibition Center, um, I think um, it opens, it's also open to the public. I think there's a, sh- um, a small fee to, to, to enter, uh, but I think it's open every night between 11 a- 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 in the morning from 11 a.m. till 8 p.m., yeah. and there's different clothing, so you can come and purchase a piece of Funduti because I'm having a pop-up shop. There.
6: All right,
1: sure. Thank you very much for joining <laughs> us, Craig.
5: Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to talk to
1: you. All right, it's Craig Jacobs there is the founder of Funduti, a proudly South African label
0: channel africa is bringing you a new program from tuesday the 25th of april join us from 900 to 10 hundred hours central african time for african gender Ndaba, a unique program tackling issues of gender injustice equality and transformation across our continent of africa You can catch the program at 900 hours Central African time on Tuesdays or at 200 hours Central African time on Wednesdays and at 300 hours on Saturdays. African Gender and Daba brought to you by Channel Africa, the African perspective.
1: The program is Africa Digest. The World Health Organization has scaled up its warning of the use of a commonly used contraceptive injection in the African continent, which could increase women's risk of contracting HIV by up to 50%. Depo-Provera, which has to be administered by a nurse every three months, can thin tissue in sexual organs, making it easier for viruses such as HIV to enter the bloodstream. The World Health Organization says that there is uncertainty over whether there is a casual relationship, meaning they do not have proof it causes HIV. But studies show that it is likely to be an increased risk. Here's Dr. Leopold Wedrago, who's the original advisor in sexual and reproductive health.
4: On March uh, 2nd, uh, 2017, WHO had issued a uh, new guidance statement about the use of hormonal contraception in women at high risk of HIV infection. This was to respond to continued questions as to whether the use of hormonal contraception increases the risk of HIV acquisition. In fact, since 1991, there has been mixed evidence as to whether the use of hormonal contraceptive methods associated with an increased risk of a woman acquiring HIV. And the new guidance statement was thus issued to respond to this inquiry based on the available new evidence. Upon a rigorous review of available evidence, new recommendations regarding the use of progestogen-only injected were made. And uh, use of progestogen-only injected, particularly the among women at high risk changed from category one to category two of the medical eligibility criteria for contraceptive. This means that women at high risk of HIV can generally use the method. The importance of moving use of progestogen only injectable for women at high risk of HIV infection from category one to category two is to optimize rights for contraceptive choice and inform decision-making and provide a clear communication about the need for fully informed counseling. Uh, WHO, uh, for me, emphasized that providers should clearly inform women at high risk for HIV about the uncertainty of research findings, as well as how to protect themselves from HIV so that each woman can make a fully informed choice.
0: Given what you have said that there should be a continued use of the drug, then how serious should African countries take the alert that was sent out by the WHO?
4: Yeah, and in fact, based on the current evidence, the WHO new guidance statement.
1: That's Dr. Leopold Wedrago, Regional Advisor in Sexual and Reproductive Health for the World Health Organization, speaking to Selena Dobong from the Republic of Congo City of Brazzaville. It's time for your news headlines, yes, on
2: Zimbabwean journalists request to speak to 93-year-old President Robert Mugabe amid concerns of increasing intimidation by the police and politicians ahead of the 2018 polls. United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs has disclosed the plight of thousands of South Sudanese fleeing from the Old Reach, Upper Nile region and South Africa's Defence Ministry to deploy more members of the National Defence Force for monitoring operations on the borders with Mozambique and Swaziland Channel Africa News. I'm on Sinsi.
1: 17.32 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest with Ms. Pumela Lezundi. You are listening to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. Now, the South African Rooibos Council, or SARC, will invest about $225, 000 US dollars this year to commission additional research into rooibos' health-enhancing properties, which could yield some of the most exciting new discoveries yet. Already known for its myriad of health benefits, most of the research done on rooibos has been limited to laboratory work and animal studies the next part of investment is expected to enable researchers to build an even more solid foundation for human trials and in some instances to move forward with clinical studies for more insights on this we're now joined on the line by enos to who's the spokesperson for sarc hello and welcome enos hi
9: lovely to be with you and your listeners
1: All right, thank you for joining us. Now, can you just tell us why you wanted to do more research on rooibos?
9: Fantastic, Supermolelo. It might be interesting for your listeners to know and understand that rooibos is a uniquely South African plant. We call it a miracle plant because it grows in South Africa and nowhere else on the entire planet. Despite the fact that they've tried to plant it in Australia, America, China, the plant won't grow because the growing conditions that it needs are unique to the Western Cape region uh, where the Cedarburg Mountains are. So uh, it's uniquely South African. And uh, incidentally, pretty recently, the uh, South African government, DTI, with the rooibos council managed to get what they call geographic indicator status for rooibos, which means like champagne can only be called champagne in France and feta cheese in Greece. So only the tea that comes from this rooibos region can be called rooibos. So we have protection worldwide now for uh, for this unique product. And uh, in the past, many people drank and consumed rooibos thinking that it was purely a tea. The truth is it's actually not even a tea. It's a herb uh, of the legume family, the fynbos family in, in the Cape District. And uh, aside from being a delicious tea as sold, called, um, over the last uh, 30 to 40 years, it's been determined that the product has immense health uh, benefits to it and um, the Roybos council over the last uh, 10 years has spent between two and three million u.s. dollars on uh, on research and uh, the research has given us some fantastic insights into the plant
1: mm. um and ernest if you can just um tell us about some of the healing properties we believe rooibos has um up until now um before you do this uh, this research that you're about to do
9: Fantastic. Uh, so, so far what uh, has been indicated is in uh, 1971, uh, Mrs. Anik Theron, who uh, started the business, Anik, um, found that, that it had anti-allergic properties and alerted the royal tea board, as it was called then, to the anti-allergic properties because her daughter was healed of illnesses. Uh, subsequent to that, it's been demonstrated that the product has anti-carcinogenic, um, so anti-cancer properties, and, in fact, Professor Janine Marnovic from the Cape Town Provincial University of Technology says if you drink six cups of rooibos tea a day, you probably will never get cancer. It's indicated for diabetes where it takes insulin-resistant cells, breaks down that resistance and allows for the absorption of glucose. So type 2 diabetes is a major, major world problem at the moment. And uh, in the next few years, there will be in excess of 500 million people across the world with diabetes. So rooibos is indicated in helping fight. Diabetes. It is indicated in weight loss programs, in anti-stress. It is antiviral. It is antibacterial, anti-allergic, anti-spasmodic. And, you know, the plant, uh, supramolella, almost sounds too good to be true. So research has revealed this so far. And what we're doing now is we're encouraging people to go to the next step of clinical trials so that uh, they can actually go along and demonstrate clinically what this uh, product can do And uh, pretty recently, uh, as part of the study, uh, it's been determined that for endurance, for people who run and exercise, uh, it is indicated that if you drink it before, during, and after uh, competition, it uh, strengthens your endurance because of the very high levels of antioxidants, its ability to fight inflammation and heal muscles uh, pretty quickly. And most recently, a gentleman by the name of Professor Simeon Davies, um, who is a mountain climber and has climbed some of the highest mountains in the world, uh, has found that uh, if you drink rooibos before, during, and after climbing your, your mountains, um, it prevents uh, what is called high-altitude sickness, where above a certain altitude, uh, people become very extremely ill and uh, often have to give up on the climb. He's found that uh, it actually has uh, properties there to prevent the high-altitude sickness as well. So it's really quite a miracle plant.
1: And what's the best way to drink it? Is it better if we have if we have it as a tea bought in a shop or is it better as a plant?
9: And what is interesting about the tea is that uh, uh, you get many different types of rooibos and it's important that uh, your listeners uh, avail themselves of all of the opportunities. So you can get a green rooibos that is unpasteurized um, and uh, has very, very high levels of antioxidants. You can get a normal fermented uh, or pasteurized robust tea. Uh, You can get uh, organic tea, which uh, has absolutely no pesticides and no uh, phosphates or uh, uh, artificial fertilizers on it. And then, of course, people these days are combining it with many other different herbs, like ginger for detox, like senna for laxatives, like melissa, like fennel. So the plant is just so diverse that uh, you can almost go along and use it as a, aside from the fact that it tastes delicious as a health supplement for many many indicators uh, yes. in terms of the illness and disease that
1: people face all right NS Dutoi thank you very much for joining us
9: thank you very much lovely to talk with you
1: all right NS totoy, there is the spokesperson for the South African Roybos Council or SARC telling us about 225,000 US dollars there that the SARC is investing in further Roybus research the Human Sciences Research Council has recently hosted a discussion on bridging the digital divide, skills for the new age measuring digital literacy. Their conversation is timely and relevant within the context of the ongoing World Economic Forum's focus on the fourth industrial revolution and how this will impact on inclusive growth and development. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Chris Chetty, who is a researcher at the Human Sciences Research Council. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Chris.
8: Hi, good afternoon. And thank you for having me.
1: Grish, uh, can you just tell us about um, the um, importance there of discussing the digital divide and how to close it?
5: Well, the, uh, if you think about the digital divide, here in South Africa, it, it's very, very prevalent. Our, our study, we looked at some of the data that came out from 2011 census. Uh, and if you look at that, we say 30% of our households in South Africa Uh, only 30% of our households actually have access to the Internet. So that means 70-plus percentages of uh, houses in South Africa don't have access and are not using these tools. And what we also found is when people were asked why don't they use these tools, the the surprising statistics were that 36% of the people said they didn't really have the knowledge uh, to go about using uh, online tools and 33% said, uh, they had no interest in using these tools. So to me, it, it was quite surprising. And I think that was our our starting point for the study where we, we started looking at this. And it just asks questions about why are people not uh, uh, seeing the need that the rest of the world actually uh, is uh, is marching towards. Mm,
1: and if you can just um, tell us about the findings a bit further, if you can go uh, dive into those findings that you have there, Chris.
5: Ah, okay. Um, so our study is looking at what are the digital skills that we need uh, in the in the modern economy. So we looked at a, a review of much of the literature that's going out there, and uh, what we found is um, there's five dimensions of digital skills that we really need to concentrate on. And uh These relate to uh, information literacy, computer literacy, uh, media literacy, communication literacy, and technology literacy. So when we talk about information literacy, that's about how we go about accessing information and and working with it. When we talk about computer literacy, it's about how we we use these tools that we have access to. So it's the programs, it's the hardware. Uh, Media, we are talking about the different forms of content that's out there, so it's image and video and all kinds of other things. Uh, Communication is how we interact with one another, so be it email or be it uh, online blogging or uh, various other options. And then when we talk about technology literacy, um, that dimension relates to our ability to use the hardware that allows us to communicate and interact and really move forward in the digital economy. So when we talk about the skills that we need, what we find is that to be literate, that's the initial starting block that you need. That's what. That's the stepping stone that will get you access to semi-skilled work, uh, vocational training facilities, universities, and so on. But you need that starting block, so you need to become literate. So you need to be mm. able to have the basic skills in those areas. Once and you have that, then yeah. that's
1: your step in. And, Krish, is there a general understanding that when people have, for example, a mobile phone that everybody would have, um, that they then have access to the internet and other tools just by having a mobile phone. Is there a general understanding of that?
5: I think that's the mistake that we make. Um, We we looked at a lot of studies and we, we look at how do people measure digital literacy. And there's a lot of assumptions out there that if you have access to a mobile phone, you actually are now digitally literate and you are able to use the tools that are there. But so what we find is that a lot of people, if they have access to a smartphone, it doesn't really mean that they are using the, uh, these tools in the best way possible. Sometimes you become very um, blinkered. So imagine somebody who's looking at a Facebook app and they are fully capable of using Facebook on their phone. but. The question is, are they able to use the
1: tool that they have? To do uh-huh. I've actually, that's an interesting point because um, I often say that um, when uh, we are um, interviewing potential students, that would be the first question I would ask. Um, do you have Facebook? Yes. Um, can you use the internet? And they'd say they'd never use the internet. There's no correlation between um, the Facebook app and the internet and the fact that it then permits you to do other things. Yeah.
8: So there is that assumption
5: that once you, you are able to use Facebook, then you have the skills. But I mean, it, it's it's very narrow, and we need to be ensuring that we have the facilities that allow people to upskill themselves. I mean, if you look at first world countries, maybe the assumption is valid that if you use these apps, you 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 know how because it's a daily part of your life. You have continuous access to it. Everybody around you has access to it. Mm. But if you look in in our country, where very few people in the the poorer portion of the economy have access to these tools. Yes, Using the Internet is a novel experience.
1: Mm. Um, now, Krish, um, if maybe we can just briefly touch on the correlation between
5: uh,
1: technology and uh, the growth of the economy.
5: Um, when, when we talk about technology, um, if you look at the economy, a lot of people, what they say is that we need to be moving into the knowledge economy. And uh, to be moving into the knowledge economy, they say you need three things. Uh, you need to have innovation, you need to have education, and you need to have good ICT access. Uh, so in South Africa, we, we're we not performing that well on that uh, on that index, on that scale. So we're one of the mid-performing countries. So the leaders in the, the knowledge economy would be the likes of the Nordic countries, uh, Sweden, uh, Denmark, and so on. So they, they perform well across the board in innovation, education, and ICT. So they they, they have conditions that allow for innovation. They have good schools. And uh, much of the population is connected with ICT tools. And then if you look at the, the share of the economy, they they contribute mostly to the industry sector and the services sector. So that's where the, the majority is in South Africa, we have a good share in terms of industry and services, so we've got a good banking industry and uh, and so on. But if you look at how many people are actually involved in the formal economy, we have far too few people um, uh, that are actually formally employed. So we have a I think a percentage of about uh, 39% of people that are formally employed. Uh, the rest are informally or, or or unemployed. Yes. So the question is, what do the what do the majority actually do, and what is what what types of are they able
1: to contribute to. Mm. All right. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, Chris.
5: Okay. Thank you for the opportunity.
1: Chris Chetty there is a researcher at the Human Sciences Research Council. listen for your economics. Here's in Matabula.
10: In your economics news, at this moment, uh, more South Africans still prefer to carry cash in their wallets, despite access to other methods of transacting. A study released by Mastercard and the World Economic Forum on Africa 2017 says that consumers used 1.5 billion US dollars in 2015 for cash payments. This, despite an increase in the number of those who have bank accounts. 77% of the population currently have bank accounts compared to 63 percent in 2011 amina akram reports
0: cash transactions remains a popular choice of payment for many consumers mastercard says the benefit of using cash is largely driven by the misconception that cash is cheap and that they do not consider the indirect costs such as cash in and cash out points 46 percent of low income earners who are banked tend to use cash because of very limited card acceptance at merchant points, especially in rural and peri-urban areas. Amina Akram, SABC News, Durban.
10: The European Union's chief negotiator for Brexit is due to publish his guidelines for the talks on Wednesday amid growing speculation that the bloc might be preparing to demand an exit payment from Britain of up to 115 billion US dollars The British Minister for Brexit, David Davis, says the country will not be paying that amount. The BBC's Kevin Kennelly reports.
9: This is all about various different European Union member states looking, I think, at what's going to happen to the EU budget in the future when British money is gone and trying to come up with a divorce calculation, if you like, that ensures that Britain will be on the hook for the money that will be disappearing from the uh, EU budget. In other words, the remaining member states don't want to make up the shortfall after the UK leaves themselves out of their own budgets.
10: German carmaker VW has confirmed its forecast for 2017 after boosting revenue profits in the first quarter, even as its emissions cheating scandal continues to make headlines. The group reported a net profit of 3.7 billion US dollars in the period from January to March, up 44% compared with the first three months of last year. Revenues grew 10%. Both results outperformed forecasts from analysts. And Lafange got off to a promising start in 2017 with sales and profits in the first three months beating focus. However, the Franco-Suisse cement giant has failed to allay market concerns over the company's direction while it replaces its chief executive officer, Eric Olsen. Olsen has announced last month that he was quitting in July after the world's largest cement maker admitted to making payments to armed groups to keep its factory running in war-torn Syria. Looking now at your financial indicators, say the dollar at 13.33 South African rand, 10.32 Botswana Pula and 9.29 Zambian kwacha, also at 0.77 to the British pound and 0.91 against the euro. Commodities: gold, one thousand two hundred and twelve five dollars; platinum, nine hundred and twenty three dollars per fine ounce; Brent crude oil, fifty dollars eighty eight cents per barrel. That's how it's looking.
1: And it's now time for Sports News. Here's Mr. Budemakura.
11: Good evening sports fans, I am Osibu Dimakura Makura with your latest sports news at the SAWAM. Newly crowned South African champions in the men's 100 meter as well as the women's 800 meter Akane Simbeni as well as Kasta Semenya will kick off the international season in Doha on Friday, the first stop of the 2017 Diamond League Series. Now the Doha meeting kickstarts the annual 14 meeting track and field event. Participation in meetings is by invitation only, ensuring that only the cream of the crop of athletes contest the series, which rewards winners of each discipline with the iconic Diamond Trophy, as well as a 50,000 US dollar prize money. Now, each one of the 32 disciplines is staged a total of seven times during the season. The top six athletes at each meeting are awarded points, on Friday, Agane Simbeni will line up against the likes of Justin Gatland, Asafa Powell as well as Olympic bronze medalist Andre D'Agrasa in the 100-meter race. Simenia is the 2016 Diamond League winner in the 800-meter and starts her title defense against a strong field featuring Olympics silver and bronze medalist Francina Saba as well as Margaret Wambui. On to football news, Tabo Sinong, head coach of South Africa's under-20 men's national team, Amajida, has described the European camp as a success as he gets ready to announce his final 21-man squad for this month's FIFA under-20 World Cup. Now, the men's under-20 national team attended a preparatory camp in the Netherlands ahead of the World Cup, which is set to get underway in South Korea later this month. Sinong's side concluded their tour with a 2-0 loss to the under 21 reserve side of peg zole with the coach conceding it was the toughest clash of the lot now the team previously won 2-0 against ix amsterdam before losing 1-0 to vfl Bokum. amajita will leave the netherlands tonight and i expect it to arrive at the Tambo international airport on thursday morning Still on football news, Zambia's national football team coach Winston Yarenda faces a selection challenge ahead of the Council Kasafa Cup 2017 as he's expected to be without up to 12 players from Zesco United as well as Zanako when the regional tournament starts next month. This year's Kosafa Cup takes place in South Africa from the 25th of June to the 9th of July and will clash with the group phase fixtures for the CAF Inter Cup competitions in which both Zanako as well as Zesco United are participants. Of the 28 locally based players who were invited this week by Nyarenda for a four day residential training camp to prepare for the upcoming Kosafa as well as the China Simons, Zanako as well as Zesco United contributed 12 of the key players. Now a week before the Kosafa Cup starts, Zanako will be away to Cotton Spot while Zesco United will be away to Recreativo Lebola. On to tennis news Maria Sharapova is still waiting to hear if she can play at the French Open later this month but the men's world number one Andy Murray expects her to be at Wimbledon in July Sharapova returned last month from a doping ban to reach the semifinals at the Stuttgart Open but did not earn enough points to qualify for Roland Garros and is reliant on a wild card for the qualifying tournament Now the French Tennis Federation will announce their decision on the 16th of May, Murray says he expects the five-time Grand Slam champion would be on the grass courts of uh, South West London.
0: This is Africa Digest.
1: 1754 Central African Time Network. Kepa Top Stories. The spotlight shines on media freedom on the continent. The World Economic Forum on Africa hopes to kickstart African continent. That wraps up Africa Digest. For this hour, from myself, Pamela Lezoni, producer, Luanda Damo, producer, Catherine Malika, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. Send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, we're on plus 27796957930, plus 27796957930. You can also tweet us, channel Africa1. We leave you with midnight train to Josie by Dukes and Tem C Lindak.
6: Hey
12: Dukes, it can see that's a Now now who got my ticket to the midnight train to Josie? Tudioso Que é Posso Que I'm going to go to the hospital with the sun, i I'm going to go to the hospital with the sun, I'm going to go to the hospital with the sun, i I'm a part of a bitch and I'm a politician, I'm a politician, i
6: I'm a What's up? No, What's up? No, Jesus. Jesus. That's a choice, that's a choice
12: I'll be damned if, dead if dead I live mine like a candle in the wind You yeah. said in yeah. my parents that's for it while I'm playing I show love, we all got blood of kings and kings yeah. I show love, slave driver, artist, grave digger yeah. I show love, well, but I'm not respect I never forget where home is, could still tie your line I show love, now hold up, I up. Ay. La oh. Why the father send the sound to bring yeah. my world to an end Reminiscent of Tadousi code cold. Yeah. Cause I'm living in a movie called The Jet Code. Like he had more to type He said, cool, yeah. Good hearted people But still yeah. a jaggedy body But yeah. cool hearted people Like I love what they it does The juta for a wine Guta for my life Guta for a dime Really not worth my time He's screaming Yeah, he's screaming All night, midnight, change It's yours, yeah All night,
6: midnight, change It's yours, yeah Yeah Yeah, he's screaming
12: By the cold of the streets Must be your way in. Learn the technique Reach for your peak Reap from the soil Where you pine till you see Can't stop your tongue i got no time to eat I feel your struggle keeps you on your feet, feet. And hand to be free Keeps you on the edge of your seat feet. We can all relate yeah. to the 27 years yes. The jump feels 76 years. Yes. yes, we're not yes. a set years. yes. tears Many stuck around to live in fear Many hoop, many hang around the end here Many changes, but it remains the same for people downstairs yes. Real talk is Know what just street crack oh, yeah, yeah. is? Yeah. back What you got is not connected To how people feel, show love. Still, black got his land back, but it's hard to build oh, But it's hard oh, to yeah. uh, build oh, yes, Make, make it. he's All night,
6: train. on the train. on the going we're showing you